0: My number one worst fear is that kids are gonna walk away from my school and not love Israel. Except that when I think about it, my other number one worst fear is that kids are gonna walk away from my school, go out into the broad wider world and learn all sorts of stuff about Israel that we didn't talk about in our school. And then they're gonna come back and then they're gonna say, Why didn't you teach me this?
1: Welcome to a podcast of Prisma Center for Jewish Day Schools. This is Elliot Rabin, Prisma's Director of Thought Leadership. This podcast is part of a series called Research Encounter, featuring a conversation between researchers and day school leaders about a recent work of scholarship. Today, we are delighted to welcome Sivan Zakai, who is the Sarah S. Lee Associate Professor of Jewish Education at the Hebrew Union College, Jewish Institute of Religion in Los Angeles. She is also an affiliated scholar at the Jack Joseph and Morton Mandel Center for Studies in Jewish Education at Brandeis University, where she directs the Children's Learning About Israel Project. Sivan is joined by Debbie Arts-Moore, Director of Jewish Learning at the Brandeis School of San Francisco, a K-8 community day school, and Rabbi David Stein, Judaic Studies Principal at Shalhebitt High School in Los Angeles, and co-founder of the Lahav Curriculum Project. Welcome! Today's discussion is sparked by Sivan's new book, My Second Favorite Country, How American Jewish Children Think About Israel, published recently by NYU Press. Sivan, why don't you start by telling us something about how you came to write the book and what you hope it will accomplish.
0: Well, the seed of this book is very, very old. Over a decade ago, I was teaching a course for day school teachers about Israel education. And there was a really troubling interaction that happened among three of the students in my class all of whom were day school teachers, one at the elementary level, one at the middle middle school level, and one at the high school level. And they were having a conversation about what counted as developmentally appropriate Israel education when it came to teaching about the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. And the elementary school teacher said, well, that's definitely not my domain. I don't have to worry about it. And the middle school teacher said, that's definitely not my domain. I don't have to worry about it. And the high school teacher looked at both of them and said, what are you talking about? I expect that they already know this by the time they get to me. And the three teachers came to me and they said, what's the answer? Like, Tell us what counts as developmentally appropriate conflict education and Israel education. And I thought, I don't actually know the answer to that. There is no body of scholarship That would help us understand how Jewish learners of different ages think and feel about Israel. And so I set out to find the answers to that question and a whole bunch of other questions that came up. And I did this by following a group of children over the course of many, many years to see how their own thinking developed over time, the kinds of questions that motivated them, that interested them to really be able to give at least the beginning of an answer to the question, what is developmentally appropriate Israel education?
1: Uh, it's a question that certainly I've heard many times in various forms, and I'm sure the, the other people here have also heard and thought about a great deal. So next I'm gonna to turn to you, Debbie and David, and just ask for your initial impressions of the book.
2: You know, as I was preparing for this podcast, I was going through my notes again, some of the pieces that really stood out to me uh, were really about moving away from our, our fear around the complexity of Israel education and really honoring and moving towards and meeting the students where they are in terms of the complexity of their own thinking. And once I started thinking about that, it made me reflect on our own practice here at Brandeis about, you know, how can we create an environment in the classrooms that encourages students to engage in in questions that they're interested in even if we ourselves as educators as the adults who have the answers or think we have the answers have our own worries about where those conversations might lead so that's just one thing that 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 really stood out to me this idea that developmentally appropriate it goes hand in hand with us moving away from the idea that we know what is developmentally appropriate, but that we shift ourselves into being attuned to our students and let them lead the way so that we can truly guide them.
3: Yeah, I really love that. You know, and I I, I was also kind of struck by this, or, or just felt pulled in this by this tension between my expectations for um, you know what developmentally appropriate looks like or means, and what we're hearing and seeing these students express uh in the book, which was which was fascinating. Because on the one hand, you know, S- Sivan, I think so much of for me what 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 you captured was how complex their thinking is. And yet it's just it was surprising because of what we know, or at least what I thought I knew, right? About you know, child development and you know, the abstract thinking and so on and so forth. And it almost felt to me like even if higher order thinking or, or abstract thinking and, and the, the kinds of operations that are harder for younger students might not be there, the emotions, the ideas, the knowledge, the information, the experiences kind of are there. And it was really cool for me to kind of watch how you, you know, see how you were able to, to, to map that out. But it also left me with a question, which was kind of like, how does it happen? The how do those things happen for students that that shape their knowledge are they are they mimicking for us what they're hearing at home is there some unseen programming that they're getting at school you know I felt like we got such a great view of where this those student voices that Debbie's talking about and it left me so much throughout kind of wondering well like where are those voices coming from um, in each case
0: I'm so glad that you felt feelings of surprise as you were reading this, because that was my number one feeling after talking and mostly listening to children over the course of a decade in this project. I was continually surprised by the depth of their thinking, by the sophistication of their feelings. Um, Even after I had already told myself that that was the main message that I was learning, that kids were thinking about all sorts of things way younger than we had ever understood before. Even when I told myself that was the story, I was still continually surprised by these children. And the other thing that surprised me um, relates back to your question, because the thing that surprised me was I had thought going into this project that kids learned about Israel in their Jewish studies classrooms, from the rabbis on the pulpit, and in some cases from their parents or grandparents around the dinner table, and that's all true. But what I hadn't anticipated, and once I say this, of course I should have, was how much of their learning about Israel was coming from the internet, how much was coming from peer-to-peer interactions when there were no adults around, And how much was coming just from the experience of being a person living in the world where Israel is a thing that sometimes people talk about often in politically contentious ways. And there is no way to unravel um, that thing that would be really helpful for us to know, right? Like, where do they get all of this from? I think the answer to that is everywhere in all sorts of ways that are different depending on different kids' experiences and um, that the power of the internet is often much, much stronger and much, 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 much louder voice in children's minds than their teachers, their rabbis, their parents.
1: That's a great segue to the question of what's the role of schools specifically in this increasingly complex and tangled Web of sources that inform students' knowledge or half knowledge. Sometimes, how do you think about the the role of a Jewish school in helping students uh, navigate these different sources of information and come up with their own picture, their own relationship to Israel?
3: Sivan has Sivan has this line, uh, you know, in the book. Uh, something like um you know students children's jobs is to make sense of the world right and you know I think in a lot of ways schools jobs are to help students in that and do do their job of making sense of the world and um at least you know for me on the high school level you know schools kind of sit at the at the nexus of all of that um Jewish schools do we I, we once had a a group of Israeli educators come into the school and uh, to visit Shalhevet. And something they mentioned was that um, in their view, Jewish schools in America actually play such a different role because we serve almost in some ways as like the center of their identity, their, their social groups, their knowledge development, their Um, you know, their, their interests, their identity, their, their relationships, all of it, you know, and so in a lot of cases, you find students really spending most of their awake hours, right, in a school or, you know, related setting, and as opposed to, you know, in Israel, where their identity, their relationships, they could kind of really come from anywhere. It's in the air, they, you know, these educators felt, and, you know, school was kind of where they get knowledge from, but not necessarily some of the other pieces. So for me, I really think of mapping some of this stuff that Sivan's, uh, you know, seeing and this question you're asking about what role schools have into kind of schools being the center for that identity development um, for our students and facilitating that.
2: With regard to the identity and within that, the connection to Israel, one of the encouraging pieces, Sivan, of what I read is. In- in your book was that actually the students feel connected, right? even in the title of, of uh, the book. We, we tend to worry, are young people going to feel a connection to Israel? And then we move into that teaching for connection, which I know now we're sort of saying, okay, let's put that aside for a minute. Maybe that exists by virtue of uh, being in a Jewish day school, having Israel as part of their Jewish identity, You know, sometimes I think we give ourselves a hard time that maybe we're not, our students aren't connected enough, but in fact, maybe they are by virtue of being part of this community and really where I'm feeling in in my context, it's about providing the opportunities in this safe environment for the kinds of conversations that will allow them to move past Brandeis, past eighth grade into whatever setting that they're going to go into and we, we all have somewhat of a knowledge of the San Francisco community, not just the Jewish community and, and feel equipped to have conversations across uh, divides. Uh, for us in terms of, I think the role as a school, back to your uh, question, uh, Elliot, it's endless. I know where we're trying to uh, attack it or, 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 or approach it is right now as I speak with working with our faculty. And um, if our faculty are sort of a microcosm of the kinds of difficulties and fears that people have around contentious conversations uh, and polarizing content, we're working with Sivan and we're also working with resetting the table to give our uh, our faculty an experience of what does it mean to create spaces, to have conversations where not everyone agrees and that's okay and may not even agree from a very deep place. That's what we're doing. How we translate that into some of the conversations in the classroom, I don't know yet, but I know that we're we're trying to move um, away from a place of, oh, we don't want to touch that because it's so intimidating. I mean, we ourselves as adults are overwhelmed with what's coming on in coming at us from uh, from the internet. We have to deal with that first so that we can better work with our students. Who are, who are also exposed to it at an increasingly young age.
1: You both touch upon something really key that I think makes Israel education different from other kinds of education that go on in our schools, which is the emotional component is so powerful and so strong. Sometimes it feels very dangerous, and it is dangerous. But our goals in, inter- in Israel education are often effective as much as or even much more than any other kinds of goals that we might have, intellectual goals, for example. So I'm wondering how you as educators in your schools talk about and create curriculum that's designed to weigh effective and uh, intellectual and other kinds of goals. Well, there are a
2: few things. First of all, We don't limit Israel education to sort of just saying, oh, well, Israel is woven into all of our curriculum. Yes, when the students study text, you know, they learn about the connection, historical connection. We make sure that we do have Israel units in each of our grades, beginning in kindergarten and moving up through eighth grade. To tell you that we have a a scope and sequence, a a, a spiraling scope and sequence, We don't, but at least I can say that I know exactly what's being what unit the units are that are being taught in each grade and that they are not redundant. We're fortunate to have a a sort of a statement of Jewish education at our school. We have five pillars of what Jewish education is at our school, and Israel is one of them. And within the and within the context of that, we have a number of big ideas or enduring understandings that pertain specifically to Israel education. I won't rattle them out here but they do help us in in defining what we want our students to come away with when they forget forgotten everything else we've taught them. And they and they are helpful. They're helpful for teachers. They're helpful for me in working with teachers. Okay, you have this unit, you know, about Zionism, let's say in the older grades. I want to make sure that, you know, our students explore what that means today, you know, right in current day Israel. Are we there yet? No, but I have I have the big ideas that are guiding me that are guiding the teachers and that the teachers can refer back to. Just to give you an example, if we have one that is and this is this is a lot, but Israel is a dynamic and diverse society shaped by a wide variety of ethnic, religious, demographic and political factors. So, we want to make sure that as we go we look at our curriculum, you know, K through 8, that that part is being touched upon and brought to light Right throughout the different units, so that's just an example of how we we guide our teaching. And I would like it to be more structured, but we've come a long way since you know, let's say, 15 years ago when I, uh, you know, I was have been at the school for a very long time. I will say we are finding that we are pulling down into ever into earlier grades. The conversation about the challenges the conversation about the conflict the conversation the real conversation of who are the inhabitants of israel and what are the conversations that we want to have around the borders and and for better for worse some of what has pushed us into those earlier pieces have have been the conflicts over over recent years so, and we want to feel that we're not just touching upon this or talking about this in the young grades because there was an, you know a, an outbreak of violence, but we want to make sure that um, when we talk about wanting to have peace in Israel as a value, well, why are we even saying that? Why isn't there peace in Israel? right that's we use it in our prayers, but some of our kids, our younger kids don't even even don't know what the backdrop of that is.
3: Thanks for sharing that, you know, and I think that you know having those you know, enduring understandings and essential questions and kind of really framing it, you know, is such a powerful model. It's 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 very much where kind of we started from uh, as well at Shalhevet. So with my other hat, you know, besides uh, just my work at Shalhevet or combined with my work at Shalhevet, you know, in my curriculum uh, work with Lahav... Uh, Maybe
1: before you before you uh, you continue, if you could just tell yeah. us a little bit about what Lahav is.
3: Sure. Yeah. So Lahav is, is kind of an attempt to develop a curriculum for Judaic studies uh, for Jewish schools. Um and of course the particulars of what students are studying is always you know somewhat community and context specific. But one thing that we found was that, you know, when you're a geometry teacher, you you get a textbook. When you know if you're you know you and there are state standards and there are kind of like measures and 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 common core and and you name it. Um, and oftentimes when you're a Judaics teacher, you're told you're teaching, you know, uh, Shemot or Exodus or, you know, kind of uh, some way, va- you know, you, you you have a book, but, you know, which ideas, what enduring understandings, um, what specific content, um, you know, if you're a Talmud teacher, rabbinic teacher. So like, well, what does that mean? Where do you start? So we we actually kind of set out with LAV together with uh, my other co-founder, Noam Weissman, who's now at. Uh, open door media and unpacked for education. Um, we actually set out to try to provide an answer for this, right? To to provide you know an attempt to sequence material for rabbinics, for Tanakh, for for obviously um, you know for Bible, for um, Jewish philosophy, and for Israel education. So within that ed- Israel education you know bucket, we you know we were fortunate you know we we did develop. Uh, kind of an approach here and a a scope and sequence that kind of really shares a lot of the goals that that Debbie was talking about. Um, But in a lot of ways, for me, again, it gets back to that primary goal of schools, which is, you know, who am I? How how do I understand my role within the world and within my community? Hanan Alexander uh, wrote wrote an article about, you know, what he calls mature Zionism, helping students Go from this kind of romantic sense of you know you know when you're when you're in love and and you're you know you you can't see any flaws whatsoever. There's no you're just you know infatuation stage of of uh, of love um, versus kind of the mature stage where one recognizes the complexity of the the people, the ideas, and certainly the countries and communities that we're in relation with, um, and is still in love with them but is able to kind of recognize that complexity. For, for us, that really becomes the goal of, um, you know, of Israel education because in a lot of ways, it actually marks the strength of a relationship, right? That um, you actually know someone so well that you know them in all of their complexity, right? And yet your, your love for them is even greater because of that or, 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 or um, you know the, your, as an expression of that. And so, you know, again, it from for 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 me for Shalhevet for Lav, it really comes back to, again, who are, who our students are, how they see themselves in the world, and um, being able to kind of see that there are different ways of doing that, right? To be able to be in dialogue with different viewpoints, and it's not just about the Israeli Palestinian conflict, right? Meaning, uh, this is true of like. You know, Datiim and in Israel today. This is true of different, you know, forms of Zionism. Or the earliest Zionists were arguing about what the state should look like, right? And that to, to me, that means that there's not just one way of doing that. Um, and so developing that we'll call it identity, but developing that um, kind of sense of self and relationship to Israel within the context of recognizing that there are. Other perspectives there as well, and then I can be in dialogue with other perspectives as well. Um, I think really for for me becomes um, what we're what we're trying to do, you know, with Israel education.
0: I'm so thrilled to be in conversation with such thoughtful educators who are doing such important and, from my view, really holy work in the world. And I wanna pick up on one thread that David mentioned and one that Debbie mentioned because it is the combination of the two that really um, help explain how I situate Israel education at this moment in time. One of the many things that David so beautifully said in his vision of teaching for mature Zionism was this acknowledgement that um, there have been since the inception of Zionism competing Deeply Jewish ideas about Jewish nationalism, statehood, um, and matters of religion and its relationship or lack thereof to that state. And there is a, a kind of a deep history of Jewish argumentation, careful deliberation, and intense argument uh, that has always been embedded in the state, in the pre-state era, um, in how Jews have approached Israel. And we are sitting, as Debbie has said, in a moment of increasing polarization in the United States, in Israel, on our social media feeds, which is where a lot of people spend a lot of their lives living. And that is a little bit different than the kinds of deeply Jewish argumentation that we've been having for a long time. And one of the things that I love most about Israel education and why I situate my own work in Israel education is because it's a contested part of Jewish education. There is no agreement about what are the goals of Israel education, what would a successful product or outcome of Israel education look like, Um, Why are we even doing this thing? Why is it a part of Jewish education? There's also a pushback. Maybe it shouldn't be a part of Jewish education, right? Um, and, And that's also a pendulum swing, right? There was a time where it was actually very common for Israel not to be a key part of Jewish education in formal educational environments. And within that contested field with competing goals and competing visions, and after spending a lot of time carefully listening to children talk about their own experiences? My answer to that question, and it's really just mine because this is a contested field, but my answer to this question, like what does success look like here? Success looks like young Jews wanting to be a part of the conversations and arguments that matter to the Jewish people. That doesn't mean having an answer. It doesn't mean that we have to agree. And it doesn't mean that that kind of successful outcome is gonna look one particular way. David's school and Debbie's school are situated in really different communities. And yet both David and Debbie are just incredibly thoughtful educational leaders in how they think in their own schools. And to me, what will be an, an example of success is if their students care about, not about Israel, although I think that will be a byproduct, but care about being part of the conversations that matter to the Jewish people, and Israel is one of those conversations. Let's
1: talk I- about Sorry. what Israel education looks like in your schools, uh, because it looks different in every school in in along many different, you know, axes, and including the question of who is teaching about Israel. Some schools have dedicated Israel uh, to Israel educator, one or or several other schools spread it out so that everyone who teaches is an Israel educator in some ways. So, So tell us about what Israel education looks like in your school, who does it, and how do you train teachers to be good Israel educators?
3: It's it's very it's very challenging, um, and it's challenging, you know, for the reasons that we're talking about here, of, you know, of the the polarization, uh, and the complexity, both when it comes to Israel and certainly within society. I I would say, you know, there, there's two two pieces. Um, one is for me, um, you know, that that dialogue um, and and nuance piece um, that we were talking about just now, which is that. In a society right, that has lost the ability for conversation, how much more important is it then for us to make sure that in our Israel you know, education classrooms or in our Judaic studies classrooms, whereas Sivan was saying, these conversations have been going on for so long, right? whether it's Israel and Zionism or Rabbinics and like the idea of dispute and debate and machloket that is so deeply rooted in our in our tradition, right? So for me, number one is, um, and this I I think is is really true for any Judaics classroom or teacher, but is that capacity for developing um, and fostering dialogue and nuance, because that's a tool that is so much a part of all of this of Israel, of um, our Judaics, and most importantly, our society. And I think that therefore, um, Israel has to be uh, kind of one of the places where we develop those tools. Second is, you know, there's obviously, you know, content goals and so on and so forth. But I I, I really think that we actually, you know, try to bring a group of Israel educators to Israel to to meet with people and 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 see these issues and learn about these issues. And so we took a group of educators to meet with uh you know religious and secular students, to meet with people who are dealing with civil marriage in Israel and people who are dealing with the working for the Rabbanut and to meet with Palestinians and to meet with you know Israeli Israeli groups and actually for, for teachers to experience some of these things as well and to process for themselves the perspectives and the dialogue and so on and so forth. And so um, I, I actually do think that we do need to be thinking about how to train people with the experiences and the, uh, and the capacities for the content and most importantly for the diversity of perspectives around these issues.
2: David, I'll pick up from where you ended around uh, bringing uh, educators to Israel. I, I, we used to do that years and years ago. There was We had a grant to do that, and I so wish that we had the funds to do that again, but I will uh, give a shout out to um, a recent training that Macomb did, a gathering, it was online, that uh, I and a member of my Judaic studies uh, faculty in the middle school attended last summer. Uh, which was around the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, and what they did was very much that of bringing people to this to the virtual meeting, people from all walks of life, and 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 showing that the more that we as educators can be exposed to the stories of individuals, whether it's a you know, a, a Palestinian woman living in Beit Hanina or, you know, an Israeli politician, uh, you know, right-wing politician, whatever, all the different people they brought to us was really a way of saying, we want to give you a sense of everything that's going on, not through the textbook, not through, you know, a, a, but through the people who are living this day in and day out because it is nuanced. And and the challenge is to bring that nuance to our students somehow, right? Uh, and I think what we're finding using literature, you know, uh, has been so has been helpful to us. And I'll and I'll bring just an example, really, from our eighth grade. You know, as they out for us, that's the culminating year, and they're preparing for their trip to Israel this year for the first time. Uh, the teacher, even though we don't have much time in Judaic studies, and I'll come back to your question about where do we teach Israel, where does Israel education live, but even with the limited time that we had, uh, our teacher engaged with our students in reading a, a a short novel. It's not new, but we never used it, which is called Bottle in the Gaza Sea. And through the reading of this novel about young, you know, a Palestinian teenager and an Israeli teenager it's not that we were teaching, okay, this is the way it is, but it was a springboard for conversation and for questions and for debate in a way that eighth grade students could engage and felt that it was interesting to them because they could connect some aspects of their lives as young teens to the lives of these uh, protagonists. So knowing that these kids are not adult, adults, but they have such deep capacity, how to, how to create Spaces where they can engage in conversations that we may think that they're not ready for, but they are signaling that they are ready for, and yet they're not adults. So we found that literature, some articles, have been helpful to us Uh, with regard to where Israel education lives. We're a community day school. You know, we have about four periods of Judaic studies a week. That's separate from the Hebrew and separate from Tefillah. And somehow we've got to squeeze Israel education into that. So it is the Judaic studies teachers who are teaching, and they do need support. Um, Many of our teachers, some of our teachers have done CIE, you know, over the course of the years. I mentioned the Macomb, And I think part of my role is working on pulling together resources and, and, and introducing them to resources. Because as you said, David, there isn't a book. Right? Or a curriculum, uh, and even if there is, we find that it doesn't all respond to all the our needs. And so it's about training and it's also about culling resources and knowing what can serve the needs of our students, our teachers and our school. What we are finding in recent years and, and, and in particular in the middle school, our middle school starts in fifth grade, so it's it's a, a large, you know, it's a wide span of our school. Um, we're finding increasing interaction between our Judaic studies teachers and our social studies teachers on the topic of Israel education and, and that has been very fruitful. I feel that teachers are teaching teachers not just about content but about dilemmas and about different ways of looking at a difficult at, at at the topic of you know Israel current events politics, uh, and we have a, a young crew in our social studies department, and they are on fire, and they are they they want to understand, and I think that this is having, I know that this is having a trickle effect on the Judaic studies teachers, and my and part of my goal and what I'm working on is to have it be a mutually fruitful and beneficial process not where one side feels, you know um, threatened. and that's back to our work with with the faculty so that they can truly enrich one another's practice.
0: So it does not show up anywhere in this new book about Jewish children's thinking about Israel. But over the course of the decade that I have been following Jewish children, I have also been studying, teachers in Jewish educational institutions, including but not exclusively in day schools. And one word that Debbie mentioned, which is the word dilemma, is something that I, along with my colleague, Dr. Lauren Applebaum, who is an expert in adult learning and teacher learning in particular, have been really focusing on. We learn from the work of Maggie Lampert, who frames the work of teaching as the work of managing dilemmas. And in following so many teachers over the course of many, many years, we think that there's a whole bunch of dilemmas that arise in the teaching of Israel that are actually shared across all sorts of contexts in the Jewish world, that are shared in modern Orthodox schools like David's and in community schools like Debbie's, that are shared when the the students are young children and when they're adults, and that are shared whether the learning about Israel is happening in schools, in classrooms, or in field trips or buses in Israel. And um, one of those dilemmas I want to give voice to here today, because I want to... alleviate some of the burden, right? Debbie and David and all of the educators who are doing the heroic work of creating meaningful Israel education in their institutions are create, are really carrying a heavy burden. And part of that burden comes from what I think is a very common fear. And I'm gonna say that fear in the voice of one particular teacher that I have studied as I've been studying children. And this teacher turned to me and said, you know what? When I think about it, my number one worst fear is that kids are going to walk away from my school and not love Israel. Except that when I think about it, my other number one worst fear is that kids are going to walk away from my school, go out into the broad, wider world, and learn all sorts of stuff about Israel that we didn't talk about in our school. And then they're going to come back. And then they're going to say, why didn't you teach me this? My rabbi, I don't trust you anymore. And it is in that tension that I see so many schools existing, wanting from a deep place of Jewish love to help foster a sense of emotional connection to Israel. And also knowing that the realities of the broader world in which we live mean that we have to, in our schools, be talking about things that aren't always so nice and aren't always so comfortable, and certainly things about which there is deep machloket both within and beyond the Jewish world. And it is in managing that tension that the work resides. And the, the really heartening thing that I have learned in listening to children over so many years is that when children exist and grow up and learn within rich, deeply Jewish environments, they understand on a deep level that Israel is part of the ongoing Jewish experience. And the the, um, title of this book comes from a developmental idea that has been around since the 1950s. And think about the work of Piaget and all of his followers who found first, and then this has been replicated across different kinds of democratic societies all around the world, that there's a developmental thing that happens in children's minds when they reach about the age of eight, where all of a sudden their own home country is the best country in the entire world. So kids in Ireland will tell you that their country is the best country in the whole world when they're eight years old, as will kids in Israel as well, kids in the United States. But what I found in listening to Jewish children, not who don't live in Israel, was that at that exact same developmental moment, these kids were able to say, actually, I'm doing what every kid around the world does in a democratic society. I'm putting my own country first. I believe that the United States is the best country in the whole world, just like we'd expect. But they also say, but I have a second favorite country. And that second favorite country is Israel. And that is really heartening. It's kind of developmentally built in. And I hear this from kids, no matter their own parents, um, synagogue affiliation, denominational affiliation, political affiliation, it's kind of built in, but there's a flip side to it. And that's why the work resides in the tension because at the exact same moment that kids start saying, I have a first favorite country and I have a second favorite country, they also start saying, hey, why aren't my parents, why aren't my rabbis, and why aren't my teachers talking to me about the messy muck that is Israel? And I hear children giving us a big challenge, and I'm confident that talented educators like David and Debbie and their schools can rise to this challenge, but it's a real challenge. And that challenge is, how do we honor the developmental needs of children, honor their lived experiences the, the, and the richness of the collective Jewish story or sets of stories and let kids live in the messy muck of this world that we all live in.
3: Sivan, I think we've actually spoken about that tension because I it, it's just so real. Um, and um, and it's I, I think it's the tension that's at the heart of all education right? Always as educators, we have goals, you know, we, we want certain things for our students to think and to love and to become. And at the same time, our students are their own people, right? And we cannot force those things. We cannot stamp those things, shape them ourselves. And so it's just attenuate. It's so, it's, it's, it's so much more um, complicated, or maybe it's just um, comes to the fore, Um, you know, in in the area of uh, Israel education. I I would say, you know, maybe two other things as well, which is, you know, for our students, you know, one thing that um, I will say, I I hear from our students is that they are, and it's an interesting developmental comment because they will say to me at the high school level that they are comfortable um, with the complexity they're comfortable learning about another side, right? Um, Or a Palestinian narrative or something outside of their own, you know, cultural or familiar experience, right? Because they have had an earlier experience that has actually really helped them develop their love for Israel. So they will say, well, you know, because in, in middle and elementary school, I, I had a, you know, again, just going back to the romantic Zionism and, and mature Zionism paradigm, because they had a romantic Zionism approach when they were younger that developed with them that, that you know, almost, you know, like you said, you know, this at, at eight years old, they, they know it's their second favorite country. So then they feel safe taking some of the risks and experiencing some of the perspectives that they haven't heard yet. By the time they get to high school. That's one. And the second is I actually think it also comes down to a lot the relationships that we foster with our students in the classroom. And what I mean by that is, you know, it, again it, it goes back to the idea you mentioned of like, you know, you lied to me, right? You know, when they come back and they they've gone off to college and they they've learned something that we didn't tell them. And they come back and they say, oh well, you were hiding from me. I, I think so much of it also comes back to the relationships that we have with our students, that you know, if we are able to build kind of those trusting relationships, if we're able to build those relationships in which kind of we're able to see the complexity of our students and in some ways pull back the curtain of the dilemmas that we face as educators around these ideas to kind of foster and develop that trust, that I think goes a long way because we're never gonna teach them everything we're never gonna prepare them for, you know, I mean, we, we wanna to try to prepare them for anything, right? But there will be things that, that, that they don't have, they haven't heard from us yet. But if they, if they know that their educator, right, was someone who kind of grappled with those things as well, or who was doing their best to make their own sense of the muck, um, that itself becomes kind of a paradigm that I think says like, okay, it's, it's safe, to 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 struggle with that myself, and and so um, I think both of them, um, you know, those earlier experiences helping create that safety, but also the relationships creating that that safety. Those are things that I I, I think I've heard, um, you know, in the classroom and in reflections from our students about how they experience the complexity of of this education.
0: I wanna jump in here for a moment and um, model for all of our listeners, the uncomfortable, but part of the game of Israel education or part of the enterprise of Israel education um, reality of a little bit of disagreement, because with deep respect, I um, entirely agree with the second half of David's formulation and entirely disagree with that first half. So the part that I um, see reflected in the, children that I listen to and in the schools that I um, follow is for sure that having adults model what it looks like to live in that messy muck is absolutely essential. I'm a lot more skeptical of the idea that um, the complexity can only evolve in those high school years when there is a deep loving foundation in the early years. And that is, um, I think, a really common belief in Israel education. And I think also something I myself believed when I first started listening to children. And the reason that I don't believe it anymore, this this kind of idea is often, I, I call it a like, love first, details later approach, which is language that I actually did not write. Um, Peter Beinart is who, who coined that term. I think that part, I I am um, making a guess, and I'd be curious to hear how that guess lands with David, that part of the difference is what David is experiencing is a retrospective reporting of high schoolers thinking back upon their experiences as children. And part of what I hear when I follow children longitudinally, which is a little bit different, is that actually these two things develop in tandem from early childhood, not from the beginning. I've also done a study of three and four-year-old Jewish children, and I definitely do not see this happening in the preschool years. Um, That's like a different ball game, but a little bit in the early elementary grades, kindergarten and first grade, much more in second grade and for sure by third grade. is that a sense of connection that, this, that Israel matters to the Jewish people, to me individually as a Jewish person, um, to my family, to my community, to my school, and to my synagogue comes at the same time that kids start to say, first of all, I wanna learn more Hebrew because I understand that I can't actually exist in Israel unless I speak the language of the place better. And I really wanna understand more about politics because I understand that there's some contested stuff. And here I do not just mean about the conflict, external politics, but the internal politics that all adults know is central to uh, Israeli culture. And that kids start to say, I don't understand why this, this contentious stuff, I'm, now this is my adult language, But this is the message that I'm hearing. Like, why isn't that part of the conversation when we know it's part of the enterprise of Israel? I am a little skeptical, again, with deep respect for David, of the idea that his high school students only can do the messy muck work because they had a solid foundation. I think the solid foundation and the unstable footing of that foundation are all the same thing. And they all develop together.
1: Debbie brought up something that I think plays an important role in the messy muck that uh, that we haven't touched upon. And I'm wondering if we can talk about the impact of polarization and voices from outside the school, from families or other community agencies, stakeholders, and how does your school kind of Manage those, bring them in, keep them at bay in order to achieve the educational goals that you set for Israel education.
2: David, you spoke about relationships and trust between students and teachers. I feel that a great deal of what happens, and I, I'm between school and parents, I'll talk about the parent body because that's really where we see some of the sort of bumping against different people's ideas. But I, I do want to preface by saying that it is all about trust and it is all about relationship. And if parents have trust, if they trust leadership, and in this case, myself, in terms of the person who oversees it, and they trust the teachers and they have the opportunity to be in conversation with us about uh, what we teach, how we teach, when we teach, uh, then, you know, it it minimizes uh, some of the emotions and highly charged conversations that, that, that can come up. So we do work on that. We work on being very um, transparent. Uh, if And it's not just around Israel education, but that's our topic today. You know, so if a teacher is about to bring a piece of literature or an article that in some way the kids are going to engage in uh, that touches upon a contested topic, sometimes we'll actually write a, a note, you know, to parents ahead of time and say, you know, we're about to, and here's the reason and here's the purpose. We want to sort of you know, we're not inviting parents to be in the classroom, and and that you know would not would not necessarily be helpful. But we do want them to feel as much as possible that they are our partners, which they are in in creating a safe but also very um, rich and uh, a, a space for their students to learn. Having said that, of course, I've had conversations with parents because usually when they're uncomfortable, they'll reach out to me before they reach out or to another leadership person before they reach out to the teacher. And in our particular community, it's everything from why are the kids learning about um, the different voices in the Israeli-Palestinian conflict before they've learned in depth, all the history of, you know, the 1947, 1948, you know, the whole history of the partition, meaning there's not, they don't know enough about all the reasons that Israel is right in order to have this other conversation. So that's one side of the angst. And then the other side of the angst in this community is almost, and I I won't go into details because this is going to be broadcast, but uh, it's almost, why are you so pro-Israel? I mean, it's sort of, if I were just going to give a heading there, right? You know, Why does my kid, my young, very young, by the way, child come away from a conversation that you, Debbie had in the classroom with students around the most recent, you know, flare up between Gaza, and Hamas, and Israel, thinking that Israel, in some way, was in the right, <laughs> you know, like whatever that kid's interpretation was, what what I said, that clashed with where the, the parent was sitting with the whole situation. I, I don't have an answer for how we navigate those waters. Just that we, in the same way that we want to keep the channels of communication open with our students we must keep those channels of communication open with the with the families and with the parents in in any way that we can because really i mean the same you know the same goals that we have for nurturing the skills that are we want our kids to have around charged conversations ideally we want to help or be partners in nurturing those same skills among our Families and, and Sivan, in your book, you say that the piece around adult education, parent education in all of this is very important. And, and you know, and that's an, another piece on our, on our, on our goals, uh, on our goal board of all, all, all the pieces that we want to have in place. I think partnership and communication and transparency are super important.
3: Um, Hannah tobin Cohn, who actually I know worked very closely with Sivan uh, on the study, uh, formerly taught at Shalhevet, and when she was teaching this course at Shalhevet, our Israel education course, you know, I remember a parent called up and said, you know, how dare you be teaching, you know, these perspectives and our students don't know, and Hannah had to be like, I'm a a little bit of an expert on this stuff, you know. I've, I've spent a lot of stuff time studying this and learning this, and I work with Sifan Sakai and I'm his way, and almost defending her, her bona fides, you know, in order to justify to the parent. And so, I, I, I think that issue is always present, you know, and I think part of it is also, you know, always reinforcing that, that our goal also is, you know, knowledge about Zion, like, like all of those things you know, when we talk about dialogue and nuance, people are like, well, then, you know, do they really know enough and so on and so forth. But um, I think a big part is also, you know, um, the ways in which schools partner with parents and communicate with parents about kind of these complex goals that we're trying to achieve. And and even educate parents in some ways. I mean, the conversations that we have with our students about Israel or about Judaism or about Jewish history or, or, or Talmud, right? are conversations that oftentimes our parents say to us, we wanna be having those conversations too. And so, um, you know, I, I do think that's, that's part of it, but just to circle back as well, to um, you know the developmental question that Sivan was making, and again, I to me it's so well taken. Um, you know her her pushback there because that's what was so wonderfully surprising about her book, right? That that it doesn't even when students are saying, right? Oh well, because I did this at this stage, now I could do this at this stage. What was so, what's what's so amazing about this study is that no, they're actually doing it throughout. Um, and and Sivan, thank you for that framing of, I don't know what you call it, the retrospective uh, thinking of the student as they reflect back, you know, in, in the reporting, because it, it really does help, I think, reframe that. But for me, the question then becomes that if I can, I want to ask Sivan. So if it's the case, right, that um, the level of complexity or the, the, the presence of nuance, right, the muck, the muckiness is not what differentiates the education at different stages of development. Um, so, what does right? What how does or should um, you know a fifth grader's Israel education differ from uh, an eleventh grader's Israel education? If we want to be doing that complexity, or if they're if they are doing the muckiness, either way, um, you know what what in your mind right then does you know that that differentiator.
0: I don't have a perfect answer to that question, but here's where I start. I start by saying, what is true across the board? What is true across the board as young as kindergarten is kids can keep competing ideas of what Israel is in their head at all times. So Israel is a dangerous place and Israel is a safe haven for Jews. Those can both be true, even though they're polar opposite things and a child can understand that at age five or six. I can feel both proud of and concerned about Israel, right? That's, that's the affective version of that. And those are competing, like those don't necessarily go so well together, and yet I can still feel both. Um, kids can do that also really young. So if that's what we mean by complexity, and it's only one way to think about complexity, then that's, that's a constant throughout childhood. Another thing that is a constant, and this is not about Israel education in particular, it's about good education, is that rich, open-ended questions that allow for exploration, allow for good learning. And that is true in kindergarten, and it's true in 12th grade, and it is true everywhere in between and before and after. So what we don't need to do Right, like the, the wrong answer to that question, how would we distinguish between an elementary school kid and a high school kid is say, well, the high schooler gets complex open-ended questions and the elementary school kid gets like facts, some stuff that we answer. That doesn't mean that there isn't a developmental distinction. And one of the, um, I think, slightly bonkers thing that I tried to do in this book is there's an entire chapter about kids' responses to one single question, which is tell me the story of how Israel became Israel. And part of what I learned from asking just this one question of children is really their own sophistication and ability to think about things like history, geography, chronology, it radically shifts over the course of childhood. Of course, um, older kids are more sophisticated than younger kids. And so the, the specifics of what kinds of open-ended questions we might wanna ask could be different. But I'm gonna give you two questions, one of which I think is an early elementary school question and one of which I think is kind of in those middle years questions. Um, but they're, they both have the same features. They're both open-ended, they both allow for exploration, they both allow for competing ideas, they both allow for the gathering of evidence. What makes a home and what makes a Jewish home? Those are my um, early elementary questions. There's no answer. They're open-ended. My guess is that your Jewish home does not look like my Jewish home. And yet maybe there are some common elements, but maybe there aren't. And we'd have to actually think about that. Like there's no good answer to that question. But that is the question that matters deeply for Israel education and for how Jews around the world across time and space have and have not situated Israel in their own Jewish experiences. Um, Older kids can think about that because it's actually a really complicated question, but so can younger kids, but they're going to think about it differently. But another kind of open-ended question is, um, when is military action warranted? When is it morally acceptable? When perhaps is it morally necessary to use physical force? And that is a question that in some small form, right, kids, even elementary school kids think about, right, can someone ever push me on the playground? Um, so it's not inappropriate for younger children, but the levels of how we might think about that in relationship to statehood itself are, are a lot more complicated. But the through line here is that kids can think about these questions in different ways, in different ages, um, and that we We're not going to distinguish between David's graduating senior and Debbie's incoming kindergartner by saying we only ask rich, open-ended questions to one of them. Actually, we ask them in all educational contexts, but the answers that kids give and the ways that they're going to be able to layer meaning upon meaning is going to develop over time.
1: So I just want to conclude with a quick question. Sivan has already answered it. But I want to ask Debbie and David as well. Can you com- complete the sentence? We know that our Israel education is successful if
2: I actually had to write something down. Maybe now I would rewrite it after this uh, time we've spent together. But I, I wrote: um, We know Israel. Our Israel education is successful if students come away with some of the understandings articulated in our vision and if they express that they have had a chance to engage in conversations about contested issues uh, as they prepare to graduate from our school.
3: I like to think this in terms of kind of like shifted um, uh, paradigms or or ideas. Like if a student, uh, when a student can say, you know, I came into this educational experience thinking X, but now I think Y, or now I think, you know, and, and they could somehow, um, or especially feel X, and, and now I feel Y, to be able to kind of um, measure that, that delta, right? And, and, and that they can express that change in, in, again, how they see themselves, how they see the world, and how they, um, in particular, see Israel here. Um, that, that, to me, is, is how, we, how we ultimately measure, you know, a successful uh, experience. Um, on on this front
1: Thank you Sivan Zakai David Stein and Debbie Artsmore for a rich and enjoyable thought-provoking conversation on Israel education If you liked what you heard please give the podcast five stars and share it with your friends and on social media You can follow our podcasts by searching for Prisma on Apple Podcasts Google Play, and Stitcher. To learn more about Prisma, go to our website at www.prisma.org and follow us at PrismaCJDS. Prisma's work, including this podcast, is made possible by generous funders who believe deeply in the power of a great Jewish day school education. Visit Prisma.org to add your name to the growing list of donors supporting day schools across North America. Thank you for tuning in to today's podcast. We hope you enjoyed and we'll come back again soon for future episodes.